Part Two, Chapter Three of the Swoop. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Swoop, or How Clarence Saved England, by P. G. Woodhouse. Part Two, Chapter Three: A Bird's Eye View of the Situation. Clarence read the news of the two engagements on the tape at the office of his paper, but the first intimation the general public had of it was through the medium of headlines. Music-hall sensation invading generals' gigantic salaries, rumoured resentment of VAF. What will water-rats do? Interview with Mr. Harry Lauder. Clarence chuckled grimly as the tape clicked out the news. The end had begun. To sow jealousy between the rival generals would have been easy— to sow it between two rival musical artistes would be among the world's softest jobs. Among the general public, of course, the announcement created a profound sensation. Nothing else was talked about in train and omnibus. The papers had leaders on the subject. At first the popular impression was that the generals were going to do a comedy duo act of the who-was-it-I-seen-you-coming-down-the-street-with type, and there was disappointment when it was found that the engagements were for different halls. Rumours sprang up. It was said that the Grand Duke had for years been an enthusiastic amateur sword-swallower, and had, indeed, come to England mainly for the purpose of getting bookings, that the Prince had secured a reputation in Potsdam as a singer of songs in the George Roby style, that both were expert trick cyclists. Then the truth came out. Neither had any specialties. They would simply appear and deliver lectures. The feeling in the music-hall world was strong. The Variety Artists' Federation debated the advisability of another strike. The water-rats, meeting in mystic secrecy in a Maiden Lane public-house, passed fifteen resolutions in an hour and a quarter. Sir Harry Lauder, interviewed by the Era, gave it as his opinion that both the Grand Duke and the Prince were gowks, who would do well to hard their blether. He himself proposed to go straight to America— where the genuine artists were cheered in the streets and entertained at haggis dinners, and not forced to compete with amateur sumphs and gonoffs from other countries. Clarence, brooding over the situation like a providence, was glad to see that already the new move had weakened the invader's power. The day after the announcement in the press of the approaching debut of the other generals, the leader of the army of Monaco had hurried to the agents to secure an engagement for himself— he held out the special inducement of card-tricks, at which he was highly skilled. The agents had received him coldly. Brown and Day had asked him to call again. Foster had sent out a message regretting that he was too busy to see him. At de Freese's he had been kept waiting in the ante-room for two hours, in the midst of a bevy of sparkling comediennes of pronounced peroxidity and blue-chinned men in dusty bowler-hats, who told each other how they had gone with a bang at Oakham and John O'Groats, and had then gone away in despair. On the following day, deeply offended, he had withdrawn his troops from the country. The strength of the invaders was melting away little by little. "'How long?' murmured Clarence Chugwater, as he worked at the tape machine. "'How long?' End of Part Two, Chapter Three